bad news, bad moods every day, brand new tattoos on my face. Hey everybody, welcome to the Ashes to Awesome podcast, Rising Through Recovery. My name is Chuck LaFlange, and thank you for joining me while we take a mostly serious look at the realities of addiction and rising in recovery. This episode is brought to you by Together We Can, where Canada recovers from addiction. That's twcrecoverylife.org. Hey, listeners. So I am sitting in studio today with Lisa, who you would probably recognize if you've been paying any sort of attention to the show. She's uh, she's become a staple on the weekend ramble with uh, Carl the Atheist and I. Uh, she's got a story of her own brother's uh, her own brother's uh, life and addiction, and, and you know, and her kind of changing her life to try and understand and to help him too. So I, I thought for a Family Friday, what a great opportunity to get to know Lisa a little bit better as she's becoming a more and more appreciated part of the or part of the uh, part of the show. So, uh, welcome, Lisa. How are you doing today? I am good, Chuck. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. The week started out a bit rough. Uh, we're getting back on track now. I've got some things in the pipeline. I feel better about next week, and that's all we can do is move forward and do better, right? So, yeah, always, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, where do we start this? I, I feel like maybe we just start from when it became an issue in the family um, with your mm-hmm. brother, and maybe talk a little bit about him, and uh, we'll build up to the point where you've, you know, your own story changes so drastically as a result, of, you know, your own choices mm-hmm. and, and, and how you decided to, to move forward with your life. If, if that works for you, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to actually start even I think prior to my brother, you know, sort of developing. Um, struggles with substances. Um, there's definitely, there's genetics in my family, right? So my, uh, my mom, uh, grew up with two alcoholic parents. Um, and so she, you know, she growing up once she sort of became a teenager, she swung very much the other way. Right. So she, I think she was 27. I think they told me the first time she ever had a glass of wine, like, at, you know, wow. her and my dad right. got married, yeah. she drank apple juice in her glass. <laughs> um, but I think she had just grown up. She was the oldest sibling of six kids. And so she bore the brunt of a lot of, you know, abuse and trauma and stuff with her own parents. And so then when she grew up, she just wanted nothing to do with alcohol, drugs, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so for me, so I'm the older of the two, there's my brother and I, um, and I do remember as a kid, like, you know, wanting to hear stories. My grandmother was in my life as long as I can remember. And she was sober at the time. Um, my grandfather, you know, we, my mom had lost contact with him as a kid and only reconnected with him um, when I was probably about 10 years old. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't know him, but as a young child, like, I guess I I don't know where it began. I don't have no memory of that, but I was always intrigued about the dynamics of my mom's family. And, you know, she would tell me stories. I mean, I think very, very, very muted down versions of things. Um, But from a young age, I remember knowing that, you know, my, my grandparents had been people who struggled with alcohol and that that had caused a lot of trauma and chaos. Um, And so for me, from a very young age, I was like very averse to things. Like as a teenager, I used to tell lies to people that I was um, allergic to alcohol because of the stories I'd heard. And yeah, so I, yeah, from as long back as I can remember, I mean, I did drink, you know, but I was probably 16 or 17 the first time I drank. I hated it. And the majority of parties I went through as a teenager, I just always said, you know, I'm allergic to alcohol. Um, 
So I think that, you know, substances have been a, a problem in my family generations back, right? Like not just with my brother. Um, but, you know, my brother and I grew up in like, you know, a, a blue collar family. Um, my parents have been together since they were 13 years old. Um, you know, we grew up in Labrador in a small town. We had, you know, my grandparents were up the road. My uncle was up the road. It was like we had a tight knit community and family and that kind of thing. Um, looking back, you know, I see now um, that from quite a young age, I think my brother had anxiety. Um, it's something my mom has, like my mom's treated for anxiety. Um, but back then, I just think we didn't I don't know. I don't know if it was just in my family that we didn't recognize what it was or if it was just that it was, you know, the early 1980s and it just wasn't as commonly talked I about. I don't think that people, yeah, would, would have even thought to diagnose somebody with something like that back then, right? And not, yeah. not a, unless yeah. it was an extreme case, right? And you'd know better yeah. than I would, of course, but, you know, yeah, yeah right? So, mm -hmm. I feel like nowadays, and I mean, again, maybe because of what I do for work, like I, I could recognize this in a kid now, but back then, like, you know, we just didn't recognize it, but it was you know, subtle things like it was like a five minute ordeal to leave the house and go across the street to a friend's just needing to reassure and make sure that everyone knew where he was going and that he was okay and that we would be home. And it was like we would go round and round in this circle. Um, and so, yeah, it was very interesting, like just, you know. Now, like I said, looking back, I think that there was just this sort of, I don't know if it was separation anxiety or generalized anxiety, but I think there was anxiety um, at it a sounds like it to age. me, the layperson. So for you, I'm sure it's pretty, you know, if, yeah. if you're saying it, then yeah, yeah right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, I remember like my mom had cancer when we were kids. Um, I don't remember it in, in much detail, but I think I think I was about six and he would have been about two and she had had to go to Montreal for treatment. Um, again, I don't remember her going. I remember them returning because I remember they brought gifts from Montreal. Um, and that's what stood out to me. But he apparently, like, again, we've heard stories or I've heard stories from my parents about when my mom came back from going to Montreal for that surgery, he had like a really hard time. Like he'd go to a familiar babysitter with me and our cousins and he would have a really hard time with it. And I think that there was also an impact of her sort of you know, disappearing I and mean, it shouldn't disappear. But I think to a two year old, yeah. you know, suddenly right. mom's yeah. gone. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, again, like a genetic component to the fact that there's anxiety in our family history um, and then possibly some trauma from that separation from our mom when he was a kid. Um, but there was definitely anxiety, you know, from a pretty young age, um, you know, but outside of that, I mean, our, parents were loving and supportive and together. And, you know, we lived in a small tight knit community with a lot of family support. Um, you know, he played hockey. He was a really, really good hockey player. Um, and, you know, again, I wasn't necessarily privy to this because I wasn't hanging out with him when this was happening, but, you know, I think it sort of started as, you know, the hockey team would go party right? And so he'd be out with his whole team and they'd go out. And I think it started with more party drugs, like ecstasy or whatever. Um, and then I think it became cocaine. And I think during those days, like I, I've heard stories from friends of his that like, you know, they'd be at a party, they would do ecstasy, they'd do coke. Um, and they'd eventually, you know, pass out, right? It'd be late, they'd fall asleep. And, 
I've heard the stories from some of his closest friends at that time that like they'd wake up at like five, six o'clock in the morning, like, oh, like, where am I? What's going on? Everybody's either gone home or passed out and he'd still be sitting there still. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm, I'm the still guy sitting, sitting there. there Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, clearly there was, you know, it, it had its grip. Um, but during that time, you know, he was still from what I'm aware, like able at times to put it away for like extended periods. Right. Um, And then he would kind of go back to it. And I think when things really went off the rails um, was apparently he had gone to a dealer to get Coke and the guy said, Oh, I I don't have any, but I have crack. Um, And uh, you know, so he took the crack because you're standing there with the money in front of the dealer, expecting the drugs, you know, and I'm sure the guy had Coke and I'm sure we all know why he decided to tell my brother he didn't have Coke that day. Um, but I think, you know, and again, this is from things he's told me, obviously, but it sounds like really from the moment he did crack, like it was, that was it. Yep. Yep. That's pretty he, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it's funny cause this was at a time in his life, like he had finished high school and he had, started to work at a job. He was doing well at his job. Um, he'd even decided, I think to, I can't remember if he left his job or if he was kind of doing both, but he decided he wanted to go and do like a civil engineering technology program. So he was back in college, he was studying, working really hard. Um, and, you know, I, I remember stories around that. Like I was in university, he, this was in Halifax and he, he was going to college And I would drive him sometimes. And I remember this one occasion I went to pick him up and I sat outside that college for hours. Like it was well over an hour. Um, And then I remember he eventually came out and there was some story about, you know, why he'd made me wait. And again, at the time, I had no idea that anything was being driven by substances. Um, I think what has happened is he was in the bathroom doing drugs and oh, just yeah, using, yeah. using, 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 using. No sense of time. No sense of time when you're high on crack. None. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, um, and I, I still, it's funny how like certain memories like really kind of like ping your heart, right? Like I remember I was really pissed off of them and my, we were both back living with my parents, like had both lived independently, but I was in grad school had decided to go back and stay with my parents for a few years. He was home as well. And it was about a 30 minute drive from downtown Halifax. Like my parents lived on a bunch of land outside the city. And, um, I remember we were driving and I was chirping at him. I was pissed off. Like I was like, you know, I have better things to do than sit outside and wait for you. And and he's chirping at me. And then finally he was like, fuck, just let me out. Right. And so I stopped. I was like, great get out. (laughs) And I still don't remember actually thinking back, like how, what ended up happening. I mean, he obviously got home some way, but it wasn't with me. Um, somebody picked him up, up, you know, (laughs) might've called my parents. I don't know, but, but I, you know, I had no idea, right? Like I feel so bad now. Um, Mm, but I had no idea. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No idea what was going on. Um, and I think it was like around that time, that we were noticing things, right? Like um, there was like quite significant weight loss. And in hindsight, I, again, I feel like we needed a smack in the head because I think he was about 120 pounds when he went into detox the first time. He's six feet tall, right? Like it's like a rake, right? But again, when you're, and when you live with someone and this is a gradual change, it didn't happen overnight. It's, you almost don't notice it. 
which is crazy, but you know, you kind of don't notice it. Um, But so there was a lot of weight loss. There was, again, some of this stuff with school or like, you know, he couldn't get up or he wouldn't go to sleep or, you know, just noticing like a shift in like a normal, you know, daily routine, I guess. Um, I also still remember going down to the basement and because his room was in the basement, he had like, you know, basically like an apartment in the basement of my parents' house, but the laundry room was down there. And I still remember I went down to the laundry room and he had pillows in the windows. And again, today I would be like, ding, 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 ding. But at the time, so <laughs> naive. And I looked at him and was like, why the hell do you have pillows in the windows? Like what's going on? And he said, and we had a cat and he said that, you know, the cat was in heat and male cats or I don't remember if our cat was boy or girl, but anyway, the cats were coming and they were spraying because of our cat that was indoors. And I was like, oh, all right, whatever, you know, um, now I know full well, he was paranoid, oh, yeah. paranoid. Right? Yeah, he, right. yeah, yeah. totally paranoid thought, you know, I remember at one point later in time, him saying, you know, that, yeah, he would feel like he could see shadows or he would stare at a shadow and feel like the shadow would move or he would hear things and think there was a helicopter, you know, outside oh, yeah. the house yeah. kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Um, but so I clearly remember the night that we found out sort of what was going on and, and he was upset. Happened. Yeah. He was at home and I think he was upset and kind of withdrawn, but he was, in a way I feel like, and I don't know how he would describe this if you spoke to him today, but I think he wanted to tell us, but he was so ashamed to tell us. Um, and it's funny cause I remember one of the other podcasts, and I remember it was one of the weekend ramblers or something else, but there was the conversation around how it might've been, um, I can't remember anyways, doesn't matter, but that the conversation around cocaine versus crack you know, okay. and it was like, yeah. yep. you're okay if you did cocaine, but crack was like, you know, you're a crackhead, yeah, right. right? Like it was yeah. just a different oh, caliber of human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we all judge each other for our habits and it's, it's crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. crazy. But I think he wanted to tell us, and I still remember talking to him and he was emotional. He was upset. And I was like, you know, what is it? Like, what's going on? Like, just tell me what's wrong. Um, and he just couldn't answer me. And I said, you know, is it because then I started to think like, God, does he have HIV? Like, does he like, has he like, what, what is this? What's happening? And yeah, um, yeah. don't and let my mind to, wander. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah right? And it was yeah, like, yeah. it was running. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was thinking, you know, I remember saying to him, like, is it fixable? And he said, yes. And I said, like, you know, are you going to like survive this? Like, can you survive this thing? And he was like, yes. And but it was like pulling teeth, right? Trying to get him to tell us. And in the end, I think it was my dad went down because he wouldn't tell me. And my dad went and he was trying to speak to him. And and he ended up telling my dad that he, you know, he had been using crack cocaine and the extent of it and the amount of it. And, and he actually said, he's like, I have found this treatment center that I need to go to. And he said, you know, at this point, he would have been, I think 19. Yeah. So he was, I think around 19 and I was about 23. So it was like about 20 years ago. Um, you know, when he had done the research and there was this program and he wanted to go to it and he said that he had considered like writing a note and just leaving in the night because, again, he was, I think, 
ashamed to tell us what was happening. Um, so then, you know, my, my dad is like a doer, right? My dad is like, he's the problem fixer. Like if there's a problem you call dad, he fixes it, whether it's your toilet, whether it's your, your, you know, your work, your health, you know, whatever, like that's kind of my dad's role. Right. And so, um, we both then like tried reaching out to this program because I think we were thinking, well, can you just knock on the door? Like, is that how this works? You just take off and show up and they let you in. And then they said, well, no, like, you know, he would have to go to detox um, before he comes here. Um, and also it was, it would, it was at an expense, like it wasn't a free program. And part of it is this program was in New Brunswick and we lived in Nova Scotia. And oh my word, like, so I was, I was in grad school at the time. I was halfway through like a two-year master's degree. And I remember walking into my supervisor's office one day and was like, this is what's going on. I don't know when I'll be back. Um, I'm out. Like, and I just left. Cause I was like, as similar, I think I am kind of like my dad. And I just went into this, like, I need to solve this. I need to fix my brother. I need to make this right. And um, I remember too, I was dating a, like a guy at the time, really nice guy. And I just remember it was like the world fell away. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't care about him. I didn't care about my school. I just, it was just like laser focused brother, on yeah, yeah. my brother. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so he ended up going to detox and we went home and I think we went home kind of going, okay, like, you know, so he'll go to detox for a few days, then we're going to pick him up and then we'll take him to this place in New Brunswick. And my dad called, I don't know if it was 24 hours, less than 24 hours, maybe 48 and just called to say, Hey, just wanting to get an update on how my kid's doing. And they're like, Oh, he checked out, you know, he, he checked himself out and turns out he had called the dealer. Um, the dealer picked him up at the door, told my brother, apparently, Oh buddy, like, don't fucking go in there. They'll make you crazy. Um, had, you know, the crack pipe sitting there loaded up and ready for him. Um, yeah. And so then we're like, we don't know where he is now. Right. And it was just complete fear. Like I remember, like, obviously now, like I don't want anyone to be out there smoking crack and that would worry me. And I would worry about, you know, you could have a cardiac event or whatever. But at that time, like I literally felt like death was pending. Like I was like, if we don't do something now, like he's going to be dead in five minutes. Like that was the intense level of panic that I felt. Um, my uncle lived in Halifax at the time. We had a lot of friends from Labrador and Halifax who were buddies of his. And, you know, basically we had a whole lot of people in Halifax looking for him. And he ended up showing up at one of his buddies' houses. And so they, they called us. We went down there. And all of his buddies were like, you got to go to treatment. Like, you got to go back. And um, I remember going in and I was pissed off with them because he would often say that, oh, I'm going to these guys houses like I'm going to go hang out with them for the night so when I found out he'd been doing drugs I assumed it was with them and I remember talking to them and they were like where has he been how did this happen what's going on and I was like what are you talking about like he's been here and they were like no dude like he has not been here and so he was basically telling all of us that you know he'd tell us he was there he would tell them he was at home and in fact he would be somewhere all by himself, um, doing crack. 
you know, like he wasn't at a party scene, like he was, you know, it was far lonelier than that. Um, but I remember again, like sitting down in the basement of this friend's house and talking to him and was like, you got to go back. And I think that, and maybe it happened before, but for me, that was, I remember the fear. Like I remember seeing this fear in his eyes because I think he realized he had gone to detox. He had taken the step and that how just how hard it was, you know, that, and I think it was this like, fuck, like, am I going to be able to do this? Can I beat this? You know? Um, so he went back and me and my boyfriend at the time, um, my parents, part of it sat in the parking lot of that detox center for five days. I would leave when they yeah, sat in that fucking parking lot. Wouldn't leave. I'd be there by seven in the morning and I would you stay there an until 11 family. PM. You're an amazing yeah. family. I can't like that is it's almost hard to believe if it wasn't for you, yeah. if it wasn't you saying it, Lisa, I'd be questioning what you're saying right now. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah. We sat there and, and, you know, I remember he would call me and, um, he would sit on the phone and he, sometimes he would say nothing. And I would say, you don't have to speak. Like, just, just hold the phone, like just sit there. And he would, at times, he he would go up one side of me and down the other, call me every name in the book, get the fuck out of the parking lot. Like, he would just go at me. And I would just hold the phone. And then he would burst into tears. And it was just like the roller coaster, watching him go through that. Um, I remember him coming to the window and waving at me in the parking lot. And I was like, I'm not leaving. Like, I were not leaving. And I remember saying to him, if you come out, like, my boyfriend's going to knock you out. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you're I, not leaving. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he stayed there. And uh, I'm sure the nurses thought we were batshit crazy, right? Like, we'd call him, be like, is he asleep? Are you I'll sure he's asleep? saw you for what you were. Uh, it, you it's know. like, remember, they've seen all the families and all the different ways to handle. And I'll bet you they saw you for exactly what you were. And that's an amazing family. All right. You know, yeah. it's just, I yeah. don't think there's another yeah. way to see that. Yeah. 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 No, we, we drank a lot of Timmy's, wow. you know, sitting in that parking lot. <laughs> but so I remember the day he was getting out, like we were there and it was my dad and I, and, um, you know, he came out and then he, he had said to us like, you know, I just need to stop at this one place. Uh, you know, I owe somebody that, money like, be- or before you tell us that Lisa, yeah. what, um, how long was the program? The, the detox program? The detox, I think, was five days. Oh, okay. That's a short one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah so this was just literally more of a medical detox um, before the treatment center would take him. And so he, yeah, it was about five days and yeah, he came out and, you know, he knew we were going. We had the bag packed. Like, we're like, we're hitting the highway. We're out of here. And he... And again, my dad might have a different version. He might have a different version, but it was something to the effect that he needed to just stop at this one house, just quickly, just run in. He had, you know, he owed somebody money or something like that. And we were like, no, we're not stopping anywhere. <laughs> like we're out of here. And, you know, I don't yeah. know if I've ever actually asked him what yeah. that was about. Like, was he really just dropping <laughs> off money or was he going to go use yeah. once more? I don't know. Yeah. You have to um, ask him when he's a good state of mind for that type of thing. But yeah. Right. I know. Right. Yeah. Um, but so anyways, he went to a program in New Brunswick. Um, can I say the program name? Does that matter? Yeah, of course you can. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. they, they appreciate it when we do, right? Okay, so, uh, so it's called Portage. Um, I don't, I mean, this was, like I said, tw- over 20 years ago, right? But this program, it was called Portage. And 
they're they were in new brunswick sort of out in the bush like they were miles from anything like you weren't walking out of there um but beautiful it was it was a very simple thing like it was like you know a bunch of trailers um that were kind of thrown on this beautiful property near a lake um and i know that they also have portages in quebec but i don't know I, i can't tell you much more about the program than that um, the one he went to was geared towards sort of adolescence. Now, again, he was about 19, but I think because of his drug use history and how far back it went, like multiple years, they were like, you know, again, he was very appropriate. And, and there was a bunch of kids there his age. Um, can't remember how long he was there. It was it was a long time. Like it was months, like three months, six months, something like that. Um, you know, and I remember not in the beginning, but it got to a point where we were allowed to go up and visit him. We could take him out on the weekend. And, you know, I think he had to go with a, with someone else who'd been in the program longer. So we would often go up and end up taking out a few of them. Um, and I remember that we, um, like we would go do stuff with them. Like we would go and do, you know, we went and played paintball. We, um, you know, we went rappelling and and climbing and stuff like that. And I just remember all these kids, like they were amazing kids, you know, all of them had been through so much. Some of them we, we know over the coming few years, they died, um, you know, died of overdoses. I actually think one of them got shot by the police. Um, there was some sort of like a B&E kind of situation and, and they wouldn't back down. I think they ended up getting shot. Um, but just, you know, again, where there is addiction, there is chaos and trauma and sadness and shitty situations, right? Um, but yeah, so he was in treatment. He came out. He was doing pretty well for a while. Um, you know, he he's had lots of relapses, you know, which is pretty common. Um, he actually went to Portage on more than one occasion. I think there, there was at least a second time, if not a third, that he actually went back there. Um, and he would do really well in treatment. Like, that's the thing. He's like a really smart guy, um, very hardworking, very particular. So it's like you put him into a structured program and he just flourishes, right? And so he would be in these programs and they would all talk about how great he was doing. And the problem was always he would get out and never really had any good aftercare. Um, and I think would sort of go back to this idea that, you know, he could sort of you know, I'm going to, you know, live a normal life. Right. Yeah. And yeah. as a yeah. guy who's 20, 21 years old, like a lot of, you know, what are your buddies doing? They're going to the bar, they're going out, they're partying, they're drinking beer. Um, and I think his relapses, I, I, I would guess almost always would start with booze. Like he would drink cause he, and he was never a big drinker, right? Like booze was never really a thing. So I think he would tell himself that like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drinker. I can have a drink. But then he would have a drink and then, you know, you're just more disinhibited and then it would inevitably land back um, to that sort of thing happening. Um, And I'm going to back it up because another thing that was very interesting. So while he was in Portage that first time, um, you know, my parents were paying out of pocket for him to be there. And we, you know, it was kind of a like you're in a state of emergency, right? Like your kid tells you that he's hooked on crack cocaine, right? You get him to detox for five days, the treatment center is willing to take him. You know, you're talking about less than a week, right? Like boom, 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 in treatment he goes. And again, naive, like I think that we all thought, well, surely the government will help us. Like, you know, like he has healthcare. Um, 
you know, this was a facility that the New Brunswick government, I believe, would pay for New Brunswick kids to attend. So I think we just assume that, well, we'll figure out the paperwork later. We'll figure out the money later. And basically what they ended up coming back with was that in order they would approve it um, for him to go out of province if they deemed it necessary. But they needed to do like this thorough assessment to decide if that's what he needed. And it involved having a psychiatric assessment done. And there was a four month wait to see a psychiatrist. And we were just like, you think you have four months to wait for him to see a psychiatrist? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I still had not gone back to school. And I actually called every single addiction treatment program in Nova Scotia that took adolescents or young adults. And I had a binder, like a two inch binder. I documented every conversation the name of who I spoke to, the staff at the at the different programs. And every one of them basically gave me reasons why if it was my kid, I would not send him here. You know, like the adolescent programs in Nova Scotia would shut down during summer, Christmas, Easter, like all the times oh, yeah. that kids are really getting into trouble, they shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it was like there was that kind of thing. There was um you know, a lot of them just didn't have beds. They were like, you know, we don't know when we'll have another bed. And I had, and I don't remember the the details of this, but I had done a talk um, pertaining to my master's degree. And um, the premier of Nova Scotia had been there and had come up and congratulated me or whatever, like shook my hand, met me. And I somehow managed to squirm our way into a meeting with the health minister in Nova Scotia and they had no idea what it was for. <laughs> and we went in there, there was my dad, I think my mom was there as well, but definitely my mm. dad, me, my brother. So my brother was sober at the time. This was like, he had completed portage. He was sober. He was doing well. And we went in there with this binder and basically said, here you go. Like, here's the names. Here's what they're saying. Here's the, you know, the program restrictions. Here's the limitations, the boundaries, the brick walls. And we didn't have time to wait for your four or five, six month assessment to take him out of this province to get him the help that he needed. Um, and I remember him saying, I remember him speaking up and saying, I would be dead right now if my family did what you're telling us we needed to do. And anyways, we had this meeting and they literally sent a check to my dad with a letter that basically said, please go away. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it was just, yeah. it, it's so long ago and it was so like, I don't know, it's almost like a twilight zone to me. Like I think back to doing all that stuff and it just, it feels that like really isn't that long ago though, right? Like this is twenty years, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's twenty years goes by in a blink, as, as we both know now at our ages, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's amazing that that it was that insane, even just that recently. It was so ago, right? insane, so, you know. Like mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I just like I think it was again the the ignorance that we had as a family around this this disease, and um, and I think it was that ignorance just like 
the sense of panic and urgency. Like I said, like I was just like, like my brother's going to die now. Like he's going to die now. Like we cannot wait. We need to go. Um, and like, I remember I had scholarships and I was like, I don't care. Like I, all my money, we will just throw all my money. We need to do whatever we need to do. Um, but yeah, it was just a really weird few months where I just felt like my whole life was just spinning and, um, yeah, it was just very bizarre. And I, I remember laying in my bed crying, like, like I would just cry. Like I just felt so sad and so helpless, um, and so scared. Like I was terrified that my brother was going to die, right? Like now he's going to die now. Um, it was like, oh, it was such a shit time, like so terrible. Right. Um, but yeah, so I mean, fast forward, right? So he, like I said, there was portage, there were relapses, there was going back to portage. Then he came out and he was so motivated. And um, and I remember him telling me around this time that he would wake up in the morning, he would get a hot cup of coffee, he would sit outside, he would watch the sunrise, and he just felt at peace. And you know, and I just, that has so stuck with me, but he was in such a good place. Um, and then he decided that he was going to join the military, right? And this came from a place of good intention, right? Like I'm going to, I do well as structure. I'm going to go into the military. There's structure. Um, you know, I think it was, and he was in the military for years and, you know, it was something he was proud of. Um, he was good at it. You know, he's good at everything he does. That's the name of the game with him. But he was, you know, he was good at what he did. He excelled quickly. Um, but what I have learned, and I've never, you know, I've not been in the military. Um, we're not a military family. It's not like I have a bunch of examples of this. But I think they they work hard and they play harder. Every single military man I've ever met will attest to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and again, like, I think it was more booze than other things, yep. but again, yep. for somebody who has a history of addiction to crack cocaine, going yep. out and getting yeah. sloshed drunk on a regular basis no. is not yeah, a good right. idea. Yeah. Right. Legislation. Um, it's the only difference, right. Between booze and the rest of them. So, right. Yeah, yeah totally. And so that, you know, led to more relapses, um, and, you know, more treatment programs and that kind of thing. And all through this, you know, like he has been with the same girl since he was about 18. You know, they're still together. She's a square peg, right? Like she, <laughs> she hardly drinks, like she might drink five drinks a year, you know, and it's like a big fancy cocktail because it's, you know, it's fun <laughs> on a girl's yeah, night right. or something, Yeah, right. but she's not a drinker. Yeah. She doesn't smoke weed. She doesn't do drugs. Um, and she's been with him through all this. They, they've had two kids, um, you know, so he's got two children and it's just been a lot of struggle, right? A lot of struggle with relapse. Um, and through the majority of the last 20 something years, he's always kind of held himself together in terms of being able to continue, you know, working, um, 
maintaining his home, paying his bills. You know, he, him and his wife built a beautiful home. They had multiple vehicles. And so he would go to treatment. And at the time I didn't think about it, but sometimes now I think back and I think that he probably was telling himself like, I'm not that bad. Like I, you know, I've still got a job. I've still got a wife. I've still got a house. Like, and so he went to treatment many times. Um, but I sometimes wonder if that was kind of a bit of a, a crux in, in his recovery was that he could always kind of minimize how serious his illness was because he still had certain things he could check, you know, check off the list. Then it was about five years ago. I remember my sister-in-law saying like, something's going on. Like, I don't know what it is, but he was acting different. Um, and actually I need to back up. Sorry. I missed a, a key piece of this puzzle. So while he was in the military, he got injured. Oh, okay. um, he injured himself and he was put on some prescription opiates and he had never been an opiate user right? It was cocaine, crack, it was all the the uppers, you know, and he got injured, he was put on some prescription stuff. And that began the evolution of the addiction to fentanyl. Um, You know, and again, there was treatment during that, but he continued to kind of hold himself together. And then about five years ago, um, that's when crystal meth came into the scene for him. Um, And that's when shit just went absolutely off the rails, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, which I feel like I hear, like, at work, right? I hear the story, like, this combination of the fentanyl and the math. and It's um, great. It's a perfect storm. Like, nobody could have seen that coming, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's awful. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, where it really, really fell apart. He you know, he lost everything. Um, you know, his, him and his wife throughout this whole past five years have, she's like a saint. I mean, she, she sees him separate from his, his disease, from his addiction. Um, and she knows that he's not a bad person. You know, he's a person that has an addiction And so she's never cut him off. She's never cut him off from seeing his kids. She's never used the kids against him. Um, He's never been allowed to be alone with them or to be a primary caregiver, but she's never stopped him from seeing them and visiting them and coming for dinner. She does sound like an amazing person. She does, right? She's, yeah, yeah, she's incredible. Um, But, you know, it got to a point where she was like, you can't live here. Like you can't be here, you know, with what he was doing. Um, And so it evolved into him losing, you know, he was homeless. Um, You know, there were times over the five years where he was managing to pay for hotel rooms or he was, you know, he would be in an apartment for a period of time. Um, But there would be, you know, various reasons why he would lose his apartments, lose his housing. He'd get evicted. Um, And yeah, like, you know, they, they lost their home. Like they had built this beautiful huge home that the banks had to take from them he lost his vehicles um yeah just an absolute spiral um and it's the last five years i think have been the hardest on him right like but absolutely the hardest on us too um 
because I feel like, and I'm not saying that this was the right thing, but I also think in the preceding 15 to 20 years, like we also were able to say, well, you know, like he's working, like he's got his house, like maybe he's okay, you know? And then in the last five years, there was no lying to ourselves. Like, you know, um, we would go months where we we wouldn't hear from him like his wife would. And so that way we were lucky in that way. Cause she could let us know. I heard from him. He's alive. Um, but yeah, like we would go months where we wouldn't hear from him. Um, and I actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's terrible. Like, mm-hmm. and I think, I think his approach to things was to stay away from us, to protect us. You know, I think yeah. he, I think there was, it was shame based. Um, I think he was ashamed of where he was at. Um, and I also, I think that another part of it was that he didn't want bring to bring his world to us. You know, I, I suspect that there were not great things happening in his world. Um, I think that led to him keeping distance from us. Um, and I also think that there was an element of like, I don't think he knew what day of the week it was half the time. Like, I don't, you know. Like there were times when he would text me and he would say, you know, uh, I'll, I'm busy um, or I'd call him. And if he like answered the phone, which was not often, but if he answered, he might say like, you know, I'll call you back um, in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wouldn't call me back in five minutes, you know, and and I like I would get pissed off at times, you know, like and then it was talking to my sister-in-law and she would say like, you know, he'll nod off or he'll pass out or he'll be using and it's like days will pass and he won't have slept. He won't know what day it is like. Um, so, I mean, it clearly, I you know, I know it wasn't being done to me or had and I know it had nothing to do with me. But yeah, in the past five years, you know, we we often didn't know where he was. There was one occasion where I actually called the police and reported him missing because we hadn't heard from him for so long. And it turns out that he had been robbed and, you know, he all of our phone numbers were in his phone and his phone had been taken and he actually didn't even know how to call us, um, you know, which is just so heartbreaking. Um, I remember, I think it was a year and a half ago. I drove up, he was up in Edmonton and I drove up there and I spent the day with him and my hope was he would come with me. You know, I was like, and he was, he was honest. Like we talked and he, he admitted, you know, where he was at and that he wasn't in a good way. Um, But yeah, he, he wasn't, and he wouldn't tell me why he would say that, you know, I know I need to do something, but I can't right now. And I would say, why? Like, why can't you right now? Like, what's, and and he wouldn't tell me. And to this day, I don't know if it was, I can't because I'm not ready. Or if there was something that he was tangled up in that he felt he literally couldn't walk away from. I, I don't know. It's often the case. We lie to ourselves when we're in addiction and tell ourselves yeah. that, right? But. You know, it's uh, but it's often the case that we tell ourselves that though that you know I can't because yeah. I got to deal with this or I got to you know right. Of course, yeah. you come out yeah. on the other side and realize how ridiculous that was, but uh, you believe it when you're saying it. So, you know, yeah. typically anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's just so hard, right? Because I mean, he's he's never been one to like you know. I mean, he's been in my house. He's been in my parents' house. I think when he was really young, like when he was around 19 with the crack cocaine, I think there was an occasion where he had stolen, I think, some of my dad's tools or something and sold them for money. Um, but never after. You know, like he, he's, he, again, I think he was actually quite protective of us. Um, and he, you know, he, he never did those things. He, he didn't steal from us. He didn't rob us. 
it was rare that he would even call and ask for money. I think it was like an absolute last resort that he would come to us to ask for something. Um, but again, it, you know, there were times when he would call and it was so hard, you know, and, and we, it's like, you don't know what to do. You know, like I felt like I was going, okay, well, if I give him money, even if it's for an apartment, then I'm freeing up whatever other money he has to spend on drugs. So inadvertently I'm kind of paying for his drugs, you know, but then you're going, but he's homeless. Like, you know, he's, he has nowhere to sleep tonight. Like, do I not pay for his hotel room? Like, do I just leave him on the streets of Edmonton in minus 40 degrees? Um, and it was also interesting, like how my parents, right? Like, and I, this has been touched on too in some of the other uh, podcasts, but moms and dads, like I think moms and dads sometimes deal with this very differently. Um, and I know like in my family, for sure, like my mom, it's all heart, right? And like my mom, like the idea of her baby, you know, not having food, not having somewhere warm to sleep, Um like, I think it almost killed her, to be honest. Like, I think the level of pain that this has caused her was, like, enough to almost kill her, you know? And my dad, my dad has more of that approach that, you know, when he's ready to go to treatment, we will we will make that happen. But I'm not giving him money. I am not supporting this. I'm not, you know, like, money's not happening. And so there was, you know somehow because i feel like that can destroy couples um yeah when yeah, you know absolutely. you have well, different we've heard it time and time again on the show how you know? often it leads to divorce absolutely yes yeah absolutely. and somehow um yeah. you know it it didn't do that and i think they were both in i think to the for the greater part i think they were able to see the other's perspective like my dad got that for my mom this was heartbreaking and that you know she obviously didn't want to go and buy him drugs. But at the same time, um, it, for her, it, it was just, you know, I just want him to have somewhere to sleep. Like, I just want to know that he has food in his stomach. And, and I think she was also able to see that. And she would say to me sometimes, like, you know, your dad's probably right. Like, you know, we are ultimately helping free up money for him to spend on drugs. So, which is pretty incredible. I think that they were able to be mindful of one another and, and they both knew that while they, they went at it a different way, I think they both knew that their intentions were the same. They were both ultimately trying to figure out how do we handle this so that he, he asks for help. He gets help. He gets better. Um, you know, I, I think so for me, um, you know, I, when this all began, so like I said, I was doing a master's in, in mechanical engineering. And, um, subsequent to that, I worked in oil and gas for six years. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's a combination. I've touched on this before in one of the podcasts, but I, I always felt like I was, I've always been drawn to people who are struggling, you know, like when I worked downtown Calgary, I like knew the homeless guys by name. Like I would take them for coffee, <laughs> you know, I would buy them lunch. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would give them money. There's, there's this one guy every year for Christmas, I would put a hundred dollars in a Christmas card and give him a hundred bucks for Christmas. Like, you know, he's still yeah. on the streets <laughs> in Calgary. I still see him sometimes. Um, and, and then I think, yeah, when all this happened with my brother, um, I think it just kind of laser focused what I think I already knew, which was that I, I felt like I was not meant to be working as an engineer. Um, 
And yeah, so I ended up deciding when I was 30 to quit my job and go to med school. And so I did medical school in Calgary um, and kind of went into it, you know, anyone who would listen to me, I want to work with addiction. I want to work with addiction and, and it, you know, worked with different physicians in Calgary who do addictions work and ended up finding my way to psychiatry as the place I'm meant to be. Um, and, you know, so I, I love what I get to do. And I think that the past five years, I won't say that it's made it easy, um, but it has made it a little bit easier for me because I think that I have this very deep rooted belief now that in our current system, right. And I have opinions on that, that we can talk about another day, but in our current system, unless my brother wanted help, I knew there wasn't a lot I could do. Right. So what I tried to do in the last five years was not get frustrated by feeling like I was getting ignored, (laughs) Um, which I did sometimes I'm human. Like sometimes I'd be like, like, why the hell won't you answer me? You know? Um, but for the most part, I would try to keep up with his million changing phone numbers and I would try to reach out to him and text him. And I would sometimes it would be, hi, brother, I love you. Um, you know, and I would say, you call me, I will come get you. I will help you. Um, but I, you know, I just know that with our current system, like he has to step up and want to to get that help. And the hardest moment for me was a year and a half ago, I went up to Edmonton and he was homeless and he was actually living in a storage unit and it was December and Edmonton's cold in December. And, um, I went up and he spent the day with me and I mean, we kind of just drove around. We had nowhere to go. So we drove around and we talked and we would sit in the parking lot and we would talk and, you know, I took him out for meals and I think he ate steak and lobster, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I took him to the grocery store and I remember, you know, buying like a lot of food and it was, you know, things that, because I think he may have had a microwave or something, but it was like basically things that weren't going to go bad, right? That he could eat. Um, But I still remember driving him. So I picked him up at the storage unit, right? That's where he was living. Um, All his shit was in there and he was sleeping in there somewhere. And um, I remember at the end of the day, and I stayed late, like I think it was about 10, 11 o'clock at night before I left to drive back to Calgary because I, I just kept trying like every angle I could talk to him to get him to come with me. Um, and I ended up having to say bye to him. Like, and, and I remember too feeling like he didn't want to get out of the car, you know, like, and maybe it's because the car was warm. I don't know. Maybe there was one ounce of him that wanted to, to, to actually come with me but he wasn't going to that day, but having to let him get out of the car, feeling like he didn't want to get out in like minus 30 and drive away as he let himself back into his unheated storage unit piled high with all his shit, you know, and know that that's where he was staying for the night. It was, it was the worst thing. I'm trying to think if I've ever been through anything worse than that moment. You know, like the the early days of this, that was shit. But driving away, leaving him in the cold, 
was the worst, you know? Um, but you're like, but what do I do? You know, what else? And I still, I still rack my brain. Did I do enough? Did I text often enough? Did I remind him often enough? Um, you um, might ask yourself, are you? Because that's, that, I think that's an, a human nature thing. But did you? Hell yeah. And are you? Yeah, I would think so, right? I mean, it's a pretty yeah. amazing story that you're telling me here, Lisa. I mean, Lisa, I, I've known yeah. a lot of people that suffer in addiction, a lot more than I could possibly count. I've never heard a story like this. I just have no, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. 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 Right. Wow. But it just shows you too, right. That, you know, hopefully it, it helped him, you know, he's in treatment right now. He's, he's, I think almost eight weeks clean right now. Um, and hopefully he was eight weeks clean. Uh, a very, 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 very long time ago. Very long, you know, like, many, many years, like beyond the five years, right? Like this last yeah, five yeah. sentinel and the yeah. math has been a shit show. But even before yeah. that, mm-hmm. he, you know, eight weeks sober, it's been a long time. I think he actually said to my sister-in-law that he couldn't remember the last time that he had been fully sober for that duration no kidding, of time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I, like, I still don't know. I, and it's funny because when I would feel lost and I didn't know what to do and I've told you this before. You have no idea how badly I wish that I knew about you guys five years ago and four years ago. And, you know, and, um, because we didn't you, know like about you, us four or five years ago. We didn't know about us five months ago. Right? That, that's right. our reality. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, right? but even like, you know, you so know. Devin, you know, who you guys have had on the show, um, he's the one who actually escorted my brother. Um, escorted is the right word, but you know, he's, you know, he couldn't go by himself and Devin went with him and, you know, and like, he's just such a blessing. Um, uh, right? and I just thank oh, God, yeah. where were you when I needed somebody to talk to three years ago and four years ago? Time wasn't um, right yet. That's all. Time wasn't right. That's yet. right. Yeah, it, Things it all happen the way they're reason, meant to. You know? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Right. I, so. uh, I believe that. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, like, you yeah. know, things though, for me, since finding your show, right. Is just that. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Ryan, right. I love Ryan. Um, but just that reassurance, you know, because, you know, I I was told one time to go to an, um, an Al-Anon meeting, right. I went and you know, I'm not going to say bad things about Al-Anon for some people it works and it's, it works for them just like for some people with addiction, AA works and other people, not so much. I think it was the group I went to, you know, but I, I went once and I never went back and I actually walked out of the meeting I went to. And I felt like it was a bunch of people sitting around patting each other on the back, being like, yeah, cut them off. You know, don't answer the phone call. Don't do this. And I was just like, you're all crazy. I'm out. I'm out of here. And um, it, I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought that up. Lisa. Generations, we've been taught to do that. To put up the walls, not boundaries, the walls, as we discussed totally. recently, and, you know, right? Um, and it's... God, we got to do better than that, right? Like we just have to, you know. Um, I, I myself uh, with a big part of my family that that was the approach, right? For years that was the approach, and and uh, you know I, I'm I'm going over to one of those family members right after we record this here, and this is part of me that wants to say, you know, what you guys like, no, right? There's no point now. It's it's past that, you know. Um, but I wish for anybody that's listening, you know. Um, the walls is not the way to go. It's not right. Um, boundaries, of course, inclusion. I, I, I think inclusions of, and connection. We, you, if you don't have that, you got nothing. And if you have nothing, you have addiction, right? And it's fuck the boot on the neck, 
right? Yeah. So, and we yeah, talked yeah. about before, you know, but over the past five years, because I think that, yeah, that's kind of been the approach that we were told to take, you know, and, and we sort of tried to do it at times, more obviously my parents than me being the sister. But, you know, it was really in the past probably two years or so that the conversation shifted to what if this is the, what if this is it? Like, what if this is how he lives, whatever days he has left? What if this is it? You know, are we going to just have nothing to do with him? Are we going to, you know, not see him and give him a hug and have dinner with him? And, and, and even for my dad, and I think he was the one, and again, part of that is just my dad likes there to be an answer, right? So someone told my dad, the answer is put up walls, (laughs) you know? And so he was like, well, that's the answer. And that's what I'm going to do. And, and I think too, it's scary when you have to admit you don't know the answer, right? So I, I feel, and I've never said this to my dad, but I feel like there's this part of him that's like, someone told me this was the answer. If you take that away from me, I got nothing. I don't know the answer anymore. And I don't want to be not knowing the answer. And so I think he preferred to, to take that approach to it. But then, like I said, that conversation sort of shifting in the last few years, because we were going, look, what more can, can be taken from him? Like he's lost his home. He doesn't live with his family. He's lost his job. He's lost his car. Like he's lost everything. So do we think that we have some magical wall that's going to be the one that sends him to treatment? Clearly him losing shit is not, is not making him go. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And, you know, we talked about this past Christmas, right? Like he came down and he actually came and like he, he'd come down before over the past five years, but he would come, you know, drive down in the morning, spend a few hours and be gone. And this Christmas he came and I think he was here for two nights, which was like unheard of. And, you know, we just, we were just with him. Like, and I really noticed it. Um, You know, he was using substances. He was nodding off at times. And, you know, when he would come back from nodding off, we would carry on the conversation like we hadn't noticed he'd nodded off. You know, we opened Christmas gifts. We ate, you know, Christmas dinner. We watched movies, you know, um, we just were with him and yep, he was using drugs, not in front of us. Um, but we know he was, and that for me was, is exactly what Ryan talks about. Like that was the love model, you know, that is like, we do love you. We're, you know, and, and you're not well, and you know, we're here, we're here. If you want us, you know, we're here if there's something we can do to help you. Um, But it actually, for me, right, if I think about the other years that were far more wall-based compared to that Christmas, and it just, it, it, it just had an impact on me. Like, that felt so much better, you know? Um, I mean, I think we're lucky in that, like I said, my brother has never been one, even in his worst, you know, phases of addiction. He doesn't, he didn't steal from us. He didn't get violent with us. Like, and there are people who deal with that, right? And I, I, I think that adds another layer of complexity, right? I mean, I've heard of people going and like destroying their family home because, you know, someone wouldn't give them money or whatever. Yeah, like so, commonplace stuff, right? Like really, you know, yeah. So. Yeah. So we were lucky that, you know, we could have him come for Christmas. And as long as we were okay knowing he was using, um, you know, we could actually just have some really nice time with him. Um but it's also really sad to think that I think part of what got us there was that fear that this might be it. This might be 
we may never see another, we may not see a sober version of him. And in this day and age, it's, it's, that is a legitimate fear. I, I, I you know, it's, yeah. it's just, it's what it is now. It's, I mean, kids are experimenting and they're dying. So, you know, people that are using yeah. Fenty the way that they are, I mean, it's, it's, it's a one way trip that is unfortunately. Right. So, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And the trauma for them too. Right. Like I, I do, I feel for him and I, I've often looked at him and wished even temporarily, cause I don't know if my shoulders are big enough, but I have wished that I could just take it, just take like, cause I just can't, I, I know, I don't know the stress of living the life of somebody with an addiction. I don't know the suffering that people with addiction feel the suffering, the stress, the hurt, the shame. And I have thought so many times, like I just wished I could take it and just totally alleviate him from that, even if it was for an hour or a day or a week, you know? Um, and I mean, I don't, I, when I've thought about it, I'm like, maybe it would break me. Like, I don't know if I'm strong enough, but I just breaks my heart because I, I do. I think people in addiction suffer so much, you know, and they suffer without the world shitting all over them. You know, um, I think they suffer in silence and it's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking because it's, yeah, just wanting to be able to take that away from him, from, you know, from other people I know, from patients, like you just want to take it. <laughs> if the entire yeah. medical community had your heart, Lisa, right? <laughs> it would be something else, you know, um, I, 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 don't get me wrong. I, it's easy to criticize, and, and I'm, I'm generally speaking the first person to jump in and say, limited resources, until you've walked a mile in their shoes, you can't. You just can't. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, and I, I mean, I think you're uh, somebody with your level of empathy towards their patients is, uh, is a pretty rare thing, but uh, I, I don't think you can hold it against the, the, the professionals that are, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're all stuck working in a system that's something they set up for success, right? So, Yeah. And I think, you know, I think, again, my brother is a gift to me in that way, you know, and, and because of him, I think that I have an empathy um, that I couldn't have been taught. You know, I had to live this to feel what I feel. Um, and, you know, so I do, I think that some of it is system constraints. I think a lot of people who work in medicine are burnt out and exhausted and, you know, there's just not enough help and not enough people and not enough resources and beds and whatever. Um, and I also think that, you know, it's hard to fault somebody that they don't understand something when I, I still don't know the answer to that. How do you, um, how do you impart that knowledge that I think you develop when you live through it. And I mean, for me living through it as a sibling, but you know, like that's my little brother, you know, like I know who he is at his core. Like I know who he was as a kid and, and I saw what this disease did to his life. And, um, and so I think that that's something that's really hard to learn when you, when you haven't walked in in some of these shoes, whether it's, you know, through addiction yourself or, or with a loved one who has an addiction, it's hard. No kidding. No kidding. So, yeah. um, today, bring us up to speed today. Um, um, and, and I think you have the show before, but I, I feel like it's something that we should get into, into this episode. 
Um, maybe start with the uh, the attempted intervention and go from there. Does that work? Yeah. 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 Totally. We um, so we hired Andy Batty. Um, well, I say we, the royal we. My parents hired Andy Batty about four-ish years ago to do a classic intervention, right? Like blindsided him. Um, he walked into a room with everybody sitting in a circle and, you know, we tried to do this intervention. Um, and I think even more than the way I described him that last December, I was up in Edmonton, he was not having it, right? And again, I don't think he'd lost everything yet. And and I think he was just not in that headspace. And he was just like, I'm not going, I'm not going. And you know, there were a lot of, if you don't go to treatment, you know, I will not speak to you moving forward. And there was all these ultimatums. And and I do, like, that's not how it began, but that's how it ended. And I think it was this last ditch effort to, can we, can we get him to go? Um, and I remember Andy saying to us, like, he's not coming with me. Like, I can tell you right now, I do this a lot. He's not ready. He's not coming. And uh, Andy actually took him and they went for a walk outside, just the two of them. And I think it was to the extent of, here's my number, keep my number. When you're ready, call me. Like, I will I will help you. I've got, you know, we can do this. Um, and then it was in March this year that he, um, it was him and his wife, you know, he, he told her he was ready and he wanted to get help. And then they reached out to Andy um, and he said, you know, I've got, I can't do this anymore. Um, and then Andy, you know, like it happens fast when it happens, right? Like he just kicked it into action. And I actually think Andy was leaving the night my brother called him. He was leaving to take somebody else to Thailand to treatment. And, um, yeah, so he, he wasn't available to help himself, but he's like, you know, I've got this buddy, Devin, and um, I'm going to get Devin involved. And I've said this before, Devin's laughed about it before, but my first reaction literally was, <laughs> I don't want your fucking buddy, Devin. Like, your second stringer team here, come on. Right? You know, yeah, I was like, yeah, no, yeah, right? like, you know, where are you? Yeah. We want you. Um, but again, things happen for a reason. And you know, Devin's personality. I mean, it's probably perfect for everybody, but absolutely it was the perfect temperament and personality and sense of safety for my brother. Um, and so, yeah, so he ended up, my, my sister-in-law and my, my brother drove out to Vancouver from Edmonton. Um, and they met up with Devin there and they got on a plane and they went to Thailand Um, and so he has, you know, it was a two month program in Thailand. He is actually, um, on a plane right now from Thailand to Vancouver. Um, your brother is, and he, yes. And Devin is picking up at the airport. That is news, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, Oh my. Okay. I, I've been, I'm excited for you. And I've also been excited for the show because I think we can probably get him on and I I wanted to, you know. Uh, once he's back, oh, you must be just yeah. so happy right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, oh, so I—that's I, that's awesome. He's going to Revolution um, with Devin yep. for mm-hmm. an indeterminate mm-hmm. amount of time. Yes, um, it's which part I'm of Devin's program. How much I love that, right? Yeah, it's an indeterminate amount of time that he does that, right? Wow, yeah. Um, yeah. Lisa, can I can I interrupt her quick? Yeah, um, of course. We'll be right back after this quick PSA. This public service announcement is brought to you by Revolution Recovery. 
helping men recover and become the best selves through treatment and therapy. They've been there and they understand. Hey everyone, this is Ryan Bathgate, uh, also known as the Captain from Kaleidoscope Wednesdays. I wanted to bring a public service announcement to you today about Narcan, also known as Naloxone. These kits have saved so many lives over the years. Uh, I can attest for that. Being in the industry for so long, I can tell you since we've had the opioid crisis declared in 2016, it has saved thousands of lives, and I've watched it personally save hundreds of lives. These kits are small, easy to use, can keep them in your glove box or in a cupboard in your home, and you never know when somebody's going to need them. If you have a hard time finding a Narcan kit in your area, just email us here at ashes to awesome podcast at gmail.com, throw Narcan in the subject line, tell us where you are, and we'll do the legwork to find that for you. If you wanted to send me a question for my Kaleidoscope Wednesdays, Again, email ashes to awesome podcast at gmail.com. We will read that question on air and I'll do my best to answer it in a comprehensive way. Uh, that's all I have for now. Uh, we'll go back to the show. Thanks for listening. Okay, so we are back from the break and um, we're just talking about how uh, your brother and I'm. Do we ever use your brother's name? Sorry, I don't know that we have. And I so, yeah, I, I've kind of purposefully not been using his name, um, largely just because I feel like this is the kind of thing where I probably should talk to him about it in advance. And makes sense right now me. he's right. on an airplane. Um, so we'll just call him your brother for the rest of this, uh, yeah. for the purposes of this. Yeah. And, you know, if we get a chance to talk to him, well, he can decide what we're going to call him then. Right. So, right. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um that was big news, Lisa, um, when you mentioned that. And, of course, we had to go to break right away. So he's on his way back from Thailand, and he's been out there for how long now? He's been there for two months. Okay. Um, yeah, so he went there um, two months, and he's on his way back now. And the plan, you know, he's been living up in Edmonton for years. Um, yeah. they're, they don't plan to go back. My sister-in-law is packing up their place at the end of the school year, um, and they're moving. Um, You know, we talked about that too before, right? Like the whole physical relocation, you know, Mm -hmm. do you, don't you? Um, I think, you know, he seems pretty set from what my sister-in-law says that, you know, he needs this change of scenery. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so he's actually going to Revolution um, with Devin, who's been on the show. Um, McGuire, folks. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, so Devin's going to pick him up at the airport tomorrow night and then he'll go to Revolution. And I don't think, you know, it's decided at this point how long he'll be there. Um, but I think that's kind of how Devin does things, right? Is Yeah. Yeah. He made that clear in his interview that it's, a, it's an open-ended yeah. stay, right? So as long as you need And to I think it's there, hard right? to know, right? Hard to know yeah. before someone gets there um, mm-hmm. what they need. Yeah, so, right, which right. is great because you hear so many programs like 30 days, 90 days, and yeah, some people right. might need that and some people might need 180 days or more, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that's, yeah. that's absolutely fantastic. I, I, I hope we get the chance to speak to him. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's his call 100%, but. Yeah, uh, I mentioned it to my sister-in-law at one point, you know, that, yeah, um, yeah. cause he's listened to some of the show. Um, okay. So yeah, I've, you know, she did mention it to him. And from what I've been told, he did say that this is something he, he does see himself doing. So okay, I okay. think when he's, uh, when he's ready, we'll get him to connect with you. That'd be fantastic. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we were just talking off Aaron and maybe I'll bring a bit of this up now. Um, 
the contrast in our, in our situations and, in, you know, the, the differences in, you know, some of the people close to us. Uh, and I don't think this is a message that we can drive home enough. And I think it's something that really the show kind of revolves around now. And that's, that's that love model or, you know, inclusion or, or whatever. Uh, in my situation, um, part of my family, big on that. The other part of the family, not so much. Um, and it's caused for us a lot of, a lot of bitterness on my part that, you know, that now, now I'm trying to navigate. And, and of course, Ryan really helped me with that a couple of weeks ago when it kind of came to, came to the forefront and, you know, different ways to look at that. The difference between that and what you guys have done right, is just, it's so amazing to me. At least it really is. I, I, I don't think it's something that we can cover enough or really do justice. Uh, the idea of the love model. Right. And mm-hmm. um, you had mentioned before we started back onto the recording that there's things that you had questioned. And I won't ask you the specifics, but can you can you talk about that a little bit? You know, things that you've questioned over the years with, without getting too specific about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I, th- I think just in terms of. Yeah, like how we approached my brother over the years, you know, and and again, I think over the past 20 plus years, I think there's been really different messaging about the right way to try to approach a family member with addiction, right? And I think hopefully in general, it's getting better. But I think in the past, it was very much this, you know, putting up walls, sort of um, giving people almost contingent threats, right? Like if you want to be a part of the family, if you want to be in our life, then, you know, you need to do things. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're done. You know, we're not going to have anything to do with you. Um, and I've definitely seen, like I've had different people make different recommendations to us that way. Um, you know, like we talked earlier about, you know, when I went to that Al-Anon meeting and it, literally just, and it was that particular meeting. I'm sure it could have gone to another Al-Anon meeting and it could have been amazing, but that particular Another day, group, that same that, meeting could have been different, right? Like who totally, knows, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know even with patients, right? If patients say, oh, I hate AA. I'm like, well, you just got to find the right meeting. So like <laughs> right? bit of a hypocrite here, right? Cause I went to yeah. one meeting and I like walked, <laughs> yeah, I walked yeah. out. I was like, I'm done. Right. Um, but it's just that, yeah, like I think as a family, right? I think every family is ultimately trying to do the right thing right? They want their family member to get better and they don't know what to do. And so they're talking to people, they're reading things, they're, you know, racking their own brains trying to figure this out. And there's been a part of me for a long time that said like, there's no one way. And that's part of the challenge, right? It's part of the challenge with addiction in general is I don't think there's one solution. There's no one rock bottom, you know, Um, we're all so unique and you know, all of it. We're all so unique, right? And the process, the addiction, everything. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that makes it really hard. And like I said earlier, I think people are uncomfortable with uncertainty, right? Or with the gray, right? They don't know what to do. And people just want there to be a recipe for what do I do to help my loved one beat this disease? Um, And the sad reality is I think a lot of the messaging has been about, you know, all these terrible things that we've talked about, you know, that if you don't do what we want, if you don't do things when we want, um, and it, I think ultimately just adds to the shame. It adds to the disconnect. Um, you know, and I think at least in my experience with my brother, I think 
when I look at in recent years, when I think the approach was more about accepting him. And that was hard. Like the idea, like we just accept him going in the bathroom and doing drugs every five minutes. Is that really, that's what we, that's all we can do is just accept this. But I think when we shifted away from trying to control him and force him and threaten him and all of that, um, you know, I just, it felt better. Like it, it just sat better. I know for me anyways, um, you know, it's like when we talked about the, the intervention, that was such a terrible feeling. Like, because I remember sitting there and these words coming out of my mouth and I'm like, my head and my heart are like, what are you doing? Like, this is, you don't mean this. This is not what you want to say. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. And like, it was completely not in alignment. Um, versus I think about when he was here over the Christmas holiday this past year. And it was the approach of just loving him as he was accepting him as he was. Um, again, like there were boundaries where it was like, you know, there's kids in the house, like you can't be out doing stuff. And I mean, he didn't need to be told anyway, like he, he wouldn't, he didn't want to do that in front of little kids. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I just think in general, I think that it's, that's the challenge for families. And that's what's so hard for families is that they don't know. And they are turning to different people and different resources. And I think they're getting a million different messages. And it's so confusing as a family member, because I do think for the most part, especially if family members are seeking the answer, that tells you that they love their family member, right? If they didn't right. love well them, said. they just well wouldn't said. seek an answer yeah. at all. So yeah, they're no, seeking the answer. But I think there's, there are so many mixed ideas and thoughts and theories and approaches. And, um, and I don't know, I think for me, a big one is to ask yourself, does this feel right to you? You know what I mean? Like you can read it in a book, someone can tell you something, smart people, educated people can tell you something, but if it feels really wrong, that's probably a sign it's not the right thing to be doing. Well said again. So specifically in, 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 in your guys' situation, in your experience, was this a conscious decision made as a family? Was this, was this a conversation you guys had or conversations that you had that, that got you to this point? Or how does that work? Yeah, I think, I, I think so. that I mean, I, is the real value here, Lisa. I think being able to yeah. maybe help a family navigate this. And, you know, I, I think that's how we can really help some people. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we've always talked a lot about my brother, you know, like he's been quite absent for the past five years physically, but was never absent, you know, like we've always been taught, like, I would say on a daily basis, I have spoken to my parents in the last five years, have, has anyone heard from date or my brother? Um, you know, like we would be talking about him and, you know, who heard from him and what did they hear? And do we know where he is? Like, so he wasn't really absent. But I think it was sort of an evolution over time. And that's the challenge too, right? Is that when I think back to 23, 24 years ago, when this began, I mean, I cert- I think certainly with people like with a podcast like this, with people like you, with people like Ryan, with people like Devin, I think families can get to um, a more helpful place faster. I think it took my family a long time and in part maybe because it started so long ago. And I, I think that the understanding around addiction is improving. So maybe families starting their journey today will get to that place more quickly. Um but we did always have dialogue around it. You know, like I said, my mom and my dad, for example, handled it 
very differently and they had very different feelings, very different approaches, um, very different fears and worries. Um, but there was always an open dialogue and I think it sort of naturally evolved, but it became a question of if this is it for him, like if this is, this is the rest of his days, however many there may be, do we want to spend those days in disconnect from him having nothing to do with him or do we want to be connected to him? You know, and it was, it, it literally, you know, it, it, I, now in hindsight, it sounds, the word is simple, I guess, but it became a thing about accepting him and just being like, you know, always again with that message that if you want to do something, we will help make that happen for you. Um, but really at the same time, trying to stop picking them apart and criticizing. And I mean, I don't think we were ever an overly critical bunch of people, but you know, in the early days, like if he was like, it would be like, you know, look at like, you can't be like this. You can't live like this. This is not okay. And we got to a point where we were like, he knows. Yeah, <laughs> like he yeah, knows he does. that. Grown ass man. You know, um, term again. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and you know, it'd be interesting someday if you ever speak to him, if he, in his experience, like if he felt that shift in our family, I, I, I think he just did. Just thinking about that, right? As we're sitting here talking, I'm wondering. Yeah. You have to have. You have to, right? You know. And, yeah. Um, well, I know there were times, like my sister-in-law shared with me that you know he found coming down to visit the family stressful, and I think that's because that was a time when there was clearly this effort to control him and change him, and you know, mm-hmm. um, point everything out to him. I. For myself, um, years ago, I remember uh, it's where I started to hate Christmas, and still to this day, I, Christmas and I do not get along. Right? And I just say, you know, but for me, it was because I know I'm going to go lie, right? I know I'm going to sit in front of my whole freaking family and tell them shit they want to hear, and I hated it. I hated. It, I hated it. So even that, even if the family's not picking you apart, even if and, and, and most of them weren't really at the end of the day, I think most of them knew I was full of shit, but. Even that level of it, knowing that I'm not going to be able to be honest with them, sucked. So if you throw on a layer of, of you know, finger pointing and, and you know, shoulds, you know, you know, I think of the word should, right? Um, yeah, hey, that stresses. I think that's the least of the words you can use to de- describe that. And I think like he would come down years ago and like we, every, and I, I think I was maybe less so than my parents, but everybody was so hypervigilant. Right. It's like if he was in the bathroom for too long, like knocking on the bathroom door, like, what are you doing in the bathroom? You know, (laughs) and it's like and then whereas more recently it was like, you know, if he went laid on the couch and just fell asleep for an hour in the middle of a conversation, we're like, meh, like, let him sleep. You know, he's in the bathroom. Leave him be. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously you want to worry. So, you know, there's there's a point where you might worry and might check, but. But yeah, not right, the same right. level of vigilance and, and asking questions and just kind of just letting them be, you know? Oh, yeah. And what is, for you guys, right? And so for him, yes. I mean, yes, yes, yes. To all those things. But for the family, right? To just say, okay, this is, you know, we're, we're just going to accept it for what It must be just this massive weight off your shoulders, right? You know, and I, I, can, I can only yeah. imagine, right? You know? It was yeah. less stressful for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Like right? I said, at Christmas yeah, time, yeah. like I actually enjoyed that, you know, his visit at Christmas. And there were definitely past trips where I'm sure it was way worse for him than it was for me. But 
where visits were stressful. There was always this like tension in the air, you know, mm-hmm. um, all the yeah. things that people were thinking, but not speaking. And then I felt like when we approached him from a place of just loving him and accepting him and just enjoying him, like, I mean, it was so nice to have him here at Christmas, you know, he wasn't sober at the time. But you know, it was nice to have him here. I mean, even my five year old, you know, um, just loved having her uncle, you know, um, and yeah, And like, you know, so it was, it just, yeah, it felt, it felt easier, lighter. It was actually enjoyable. Like it was like a nice visit. And you think to yourself, thank God that this didn't happen. But if he had overdosed in January, I'm just like, I would look back and say, I'm so happy that our last time with him was what it was. And the thing is, the reality is every time you're with a loved one who has an addiction, you never know if it's the last time that you're going to spend time with them. So do you want to spend it making them feel worse than they already feel? Um, being stressed out, being critical, um, not, you know, living the love model? Or do you want to, again, like, I think it is important that they know that if you are available to help them, tell them that if you want help, if you need me, call me, reach out, we will be there. But I also think there's a place where I think that it is actually beneficial to just be with them and just love them, just accept them. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, you really got me... Right now, I, I just can't stop thinking about the freedom that must come from just accepting, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and oh my, right? That's a, it's got to be an amazing feeling. And, and of course, being on the other side of that conversation, how nice that would have been, right? How nice that would have been. I yeah, hope right? so. You know, you know yeah, like I, yeah. I know my sister-in-law said when they went back that he had said to her, like he had actually enjoyed that trip. Um, and I know that wasn't, you know, that wasn't always the case when it, involved coming down to visit family while he was actively using, you know? So yeah, I think, I think it was felt by everybody. I think. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I'm looking so forward to keeping track of his journey and, mm-hmm. and, um, well, you know what? I, I've got to speak to that too, I guess, Lisa, and it's probably an uncomfortable question. Hopefully optimistic mm-hmm. would that, it, would that be, where you're at now? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, yeah. fe- I feel like, you know, again, like the naive me on day one, right? Like he checks in the detox and I was like, oh, there we go. All better. You know, like we'll pick him up in five <laughs> days, take him to treatment <laughs> yeah, and everything, yeah. you know, problem solved, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, to yeah. go from that to today, I mean, you know, it's been shit to get to this place. But at the same time, um, yeah, I think we're hopeful. And I think you have to be hopeful. Like, I think if you ever get to a place where you're not hopeful, um, done. You, you know, know, on both sides of that. Story, yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> Without hope, he, you got nothing. Right? You know, so, yeah, yeah. and it's interesting because my sister-in-law was actually here on the weekend and, you know, and obviously for her, there's like a whole other layer of that fear. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they have two kids yeah. and, she you know, and, and absolutely amazingly. <laughs> right. <laughs> what a woman. Yeah, and, yeah. And one of the things that her and I talked about is, you know, I think it is normal to be scared and it's normal to worry, but it's like I said to her, it's also robbing herself. And I think true for all of us, but it's, you're also robbing yourself if you don't allow yourself to enjoy the days that are good. 
right? And it's just like, yeah, yeah, like like, today is a good day. (laughs) We're just going to take it, (laughs) you know? Um, Like it or not, you uh, you kind of have to subscribe the one day at a time, right? It's it's not just for the addict, right? You know, right? No, you know, and it's like, hey, that's okay. But, you know, it's like if hard days come, then we'll deal with them when they come. But why spend the good days stressed out and worried in anticipation that there might be a bad day? Um, and I don't know, I also feel like, you know, let's put energy out into the world, right? Let's put out positive energy, um, when, uh, when we can. In in all those years, he's never had a Devin in his corner, right? You know, and you know, he's, he's never had the ashes awesome in his corner either. So right? maybe that counts for something yeah. too. I don't know. Right? <laughs> you know. No, I think this is different. You know. I think he's in a different place. And that's for me what makes me hopeful. And as sad as this is to say, I think one of the biggest differences is like we talked about earlier, I think in the past, he's been able to sort of tell himself a certain, I don't know if why is the right word, but I think he's been able to lie to himself a little bit by saying, you know, I've still got a job and I've still got a house and I've still got my truck and I've got all these things. And I think this time, you know, as his mind becomes clearer and clearer to be able to look back and reflect at the fact that no, like your drug use robbed you of, of just about everything, you know, his family was still there, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I hope that he uses that because I mean, he's, I'm sure he's going to have hard, hard moments, hard days, hard weeks, you know, but I hope that he can look back at that and use that to like fuel the fight, you know? No kidding. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah. Normally I like to go over, uh, you know, the thing I started doing, it was the worst thing that ever happened. I, I know. Not this time. I just, I, I love that this entire talk has been essentially about the love model, right? And mm-hmm. I, I don't, um, I, again, I don't think we can do that term enough, to, uh, enough justice. We can't, we can't talk about it enough. And it, 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 I mean, the show has become this thing that's kind of centered around that. Thank you to Ryan uh, Bathgate for that. You know, well, why don't we just, you got some daily gratitudes for me today, Lisa. I, I, I just, I'm really happy with where we're at on this talk, and, and I don't think mm-hmm. I want to do it anymore. <laughs> I think this is a great place yeah. to end it for now, and you know, um, we'll do some daily yeah. gratitudes and, and finish the show off. Right? Hey, this is Scott from the No New Friends Podcast, the podcast for adults who love to laugh at adulting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ashes to Awesome. The daily gratitudes are brought to you by the No New Friends Podcast. Please check us out, nonewfriendspodcast.com. We're streaming on all major platforms. If you just need laughter in your week, just an escape from what's going on in your life, I highly recommend my podcast to get you through that week, bring some levity and and make you laugh. So check us out. No New Friends Podcast on all streaming platforms. That's nonewfriendspodcast.com. And now here are your daily gratitudes. And remember, you are loved. I I think I feel like a bit of a broken record, but I feel like right now, maybe just with where my life is at and where my family's at, this, you know, that's just where my mind is at. But um, I will say it again, and I'll say it every day as long as I can. I am grateful that today my brother is sober. Um, You know, it's like, it's been a wish of mine. You know, every time you blow out a birthday candle, you, you know, if you wish on eyelashes, like whatever it is you do, right? Every wish that I've made, um, I think it's pretty much centered around just wanting him to be well, you know, and to be at peace. And so I think being sober is the first step to that. Um, I'm grateful can for people you, like, yeah, I, can I, interrupt yeah. You? 
I've, I've been looking for this opportunity for, for quite a while because, you know, we've had so many different conversations. You, you say this thing about wanting your brother to be at peace. So mm-hmm. it's actually a very emotional thing for me. And every time you say it, it's like, so I want to talk about it really mm-hmm. quick, as much as I hate to interrupt some of these daily gratitudes. It's not what we do, but yeah. I just, I, I feel like maybe this is the time. So, um, when I got back to Calgary, I, I uh, originally, the, the first place I stayed was my buddy's sister and, um, She's got her own, she's kind of crazy, but she had said to me, we were just in a, in a very casual conversation, um, and I, at this time that I was suffering really hard with the trauma and you know, things that I'd faced back in Regina, and she, she just looked at me and said, I just wish you could have some peace of mind, right? You have no idea yeah. what that means, right? So every time you say that, it yeah. brings that up for me, right? But um, mm-hmm. thank you on behalf of your brother, you know, I... Wow! All right, because peace of mind mm-hmm. is such like such a coveted thing after fucking chaos for so long, right? You know, and yeah, um, I'm glad that you say it that way. And you're kind of the only person I've ever heard aside from from that from that friend say it like that. And I just um, I wanted to give you a shout out for that because it, it really does mean a lot every time I hear you say that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Okay, no, I think that, like one <laughs> before one thing to yeah. say is like I really. If I could say anything to a family member, I have yeah. a lot of words. I talk a lot, so maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> we love thing. it. We love it, right? Yeah, it's, it's killer content. <laughs> so yeah, just keep chatting away. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that I, I I would say is it's really easy as a family member, right? We're sober. We don't have the escape as as we've talked about. It's really easy to to feel resentment and to feel hurt and to feel betrayed and to feel angry and to feel scared and to feel like all of those feelings I think are commonly talked about when we think about loved ones of someone in addiction. I really think, and and again, maybe this is just another angle of the, the love model, but I really think it is so important to stop and to consider the amount your loved one in addiction is suffering. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, as the sister, have I suffered over the past 20 something years? Yeah, like I've, I've hurt, I've been sad, I've been scared, I've been mad, I've had all those things. But for me, what trumps that by miles is like, I can, it's like, I feel my brother's pain, you know? And, and I feel like if you can stop pathologizing someone in addiction and just focusing on the shitty things they might do, the shitty things they might be engaged in. And if you can step away from that and look at them as a human, as a person, I don't believe that there's anyone in active addiction who is not suffering. And I fully believe that as much as I have hurt, my brother's pain and stress and, and, and the weight on his shoulders trumps anything I've experienced. It does. And, it does. you know, I feel like it's, if it's we can to take look away from yours, but you know, you don't yeah. have to take away from yours to appreciate his, right? You don't have to. No, exactly. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I really think if we, if families could stop with the, you know, seeing, seeing their 
victim role in this. And they are, they are victims of this disease, no doubt. But I think that's talked about a lot. And I feel like if, if we could also allow space, and sometimes you just need to sit in that, you need to hurt, you need to be scared, you need to be sad, you need to cry, you need to get angry. But I feel like if, if people could make more of a concerted effort to take some time to just imagine for a moment what it is like to walk the shoes of somebody with an addiction, maybe that would foster more empathy and more compassion and more love and, and create space for connection. Right. Um, because yeah, like I said, I just think no matter the, how much I've hurt, I, I don't think it, it touches the amount that my brother has hurt. No, you know? Yeah. I have a friend, um, is very quickly becoming an ex-friend, uh, one of my best friends for the last 25 years, who recently said to me again, oh, uh, my, my old man doesn't like you because he had to listen to you, me cry about you for a year, you know, or two years or whatever it was. And it's like, I'm sorry that the hell I was in was hard on your life. I'm really sorry for that. Yeah. Right? And it, yeah. much more, you know, there's a better way to say that, but at the same time, it's so true. Right? And I'm just... Yeah. I, I am so sorry that you were worried while I was living it, you know, and, and, but I am legitimately apologizing for that, but I'm sorry. Like, I can't, you know, it's like to be me, right? Oh, how about a fucking phone yeah. call on that year? Right. <laughs> that would have meant yeah. a lot too, you know? Um, and, and it's not to yeah. throw it back at them, but, um, I'm, I, I'm just getting, I, I had the same problem with my family too, with, with, with certain people in my family. I, I'm sorry it was so hard on you, right? And I am, but like, yeah. just yeah. seeing what I was dealing with. Right. I was being I know. tortured and kidnapped and, you know, all those things. Right. Yeah. So sorry, yeah. I didn't fucking make time to make you feel better about it. But yeah. <laughs> it's like, that and was I, like we talked right? about this before. Right. One time, Chuck, I remember it was like just this. I think it was we talked about it when we were talking about the word addict. Right. And I said, like, I feel like sometimes the people who use that word the most are people who are themselves in a, like in addiction or have addiction. Um, and, and this idea that maybe it comes from this place, you know, in in folks who are in recovery, that they need to accept responsibility, and they need to own it. And, um, but again, I, I feel like there's this really fine line you want to walk, because I think it gets to a point where it almost like fosters this idea that it's your fault. And, you know, it's your fault, and you did something bad. And I'm like, I really believe that it's an illness. And this illness, this illness just permeates badness everywhere. Right. And, and, and bad things come from addiction, and but the individual themselves is it's not a bad. It's thousand micro choices. It's not a choice. It's a bunch yeah. of them. And it just, it, it yeah. happens over time. It's not a, I didn't decide to fuck up my yeah. life today. There was a bunch of things that led up to that. Yeah. Right. You know, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's get back to your yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Like I said, I'm so grateful for, people like you and Ryan and Devin, um, you know, I wish, like I said, I had known people like you before now, um, because I know for fact that there were so many times in the last 20 something years where being able to listen to these podcasts or being able to have these conversations would have been so helpful and reassuring and just safe, I think is the word that comes to mind. Um, you know, and I think that, yeah, there was just a lot of times in the last 20 something years where I think 
as a family, I think we felt really alone, you know, like we, we didn't, you know, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to make it right. And we really didn't know who to turn to, to get that advice or to have these conversations. And so, you know, I'm, yeah, just so thankful. And I just hope that this keeps growing and more people keep listening. Um, because, you know, I know, I know with certainty that this would have been so helpful um, for for us as a family in the past. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm grateful that I'm going to get to see my brother next week. I I'm going to go out and right. <laughs> take him for dinner and see him clear eyed for the first time in years. Um, okay. And yeah, I'm, I'm like very great. Probably. <laughs> you hold it together really well, right? Um, I think uh, you and KTA are the only people that really hold it together all the time. So that's why I ask, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm, I, yeah. I hold it together till I don't. It's usually the way it is with me. It's uh, like you open enough. the gate and then it's a hard one to shut. But, well, um, I had to do it enough for everybody. I'm a crier. So. <laughs> I got, that, I got that down. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Better out than in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. True enough. True enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that all you got for me, Rado? Yeah. That's yeah. it. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Um, I, I got to throw a couple out today myself. Um, Lisa, for you reaching out that day to the show, um, you have brought another layer, another level, I'll even say, to the show. And I'm really, truly grateful for that. And I, I hope, God, you stick around because, uh, this is, it's great. It really is, you know, um, not many people have the lived experience and the education to sit here and have a conversation in, in, in the way that you can. And it's, we're, we're really blessed, you know, and, and thank you for Devin for kind of kicking in our direction that day. And, you know, right. Yeah. Well, now you're stuck. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, like I said, it is know. my pleasure. Um, uh, I'm thankful for my tears too. Right. I am. I really am. I'm, mm-hmm. I just, I, I love it. I won't change it. Um, and it is what it is. And yeah, fuck it. I, I'm thankful to the listeners. You guys, this is going to be one of those episodes. A lot of people here. I, I know that already. And, uh, please, please make your reviews, um, your ratings, whatever on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help. It helps in a big way and it keeps pushing the show forward. And there's more people are going to get this message and more people are going to be helped. And you're just getting me that much closer to living my best life. And my best life is to make a humble living, spreading the message. And the message is this. If you are in active addiction right now, today could be the day. Today could be the day that you start that lifelong journey. Reach out to a friend, reach out to a family member, call into detox, go to a meeting, do whatever the hell it is you need to do to get that journey started because it is so much better on the other side. And if you are the loved one of somebody suffering in addiction, you're just taking the time to listen to our talk today, and we really appreciate that. If you could just take one more minute and text that person, let them know they are loved. Use the words. You are loved. That little glimmer of hope just might be the thing that brings him back. It almost died trying to get here Got high through my best years Got sober, then I relapsed Then I cleaned up, got my head clear Sometimes it feels like there ain't to believe in But I believe that we're out here for a reason yeah. You don't think you're a fighter
tired from the pressure I put on myself for years Tired from my 20s, the whiskey bottles and beers Tired of smiling while I've been holding back tears But I believe I can do it, so I'm here I'm a believer I believe I'm a believer I believe I've been told I have a death wish No one's interested Cold and too aggressive Close to hypertension I'm broken from the pressure Explosive with my temper I'm sober but I'm stressing And hoping it gets better Am I falling off? Should I give it up or put it all on pause? Like all this dream so I can visit home and talk to mom? Maybe all I need's another Instagram post With a quote about believing in yourself when you're low You don't think you're a fighter But I know you are You are a liar You say you are You don't think that you're worth it But I think you are And I think you're perfect The way that you are Maybe I'm weaker And I know I've lost before But I'm a believer Nothing is impossible I'm a believer I believe I'm a believer I believe You don't think you're a fighter